This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years, and they remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. With summer just around the corner, it really does feel that way, we aren't far away from barbecue season and all those gorgeous summer parties, which means you should have your cook's matches to hand to take you from lighting the barbecue at lunchtime right through to the evening when you can get some candles lit in the garden. No kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves to barbecues to candles. If you're stuck for what to cook this summer, then Cook's Matches loves compiling recipes to show easy, delicious and family-friendly dishes. Head over to their Instagram page at Cook's Matches and join the Cook's community. Find out more online by visiting cooksmatches.co.uk. Thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Hi, I hope you're all well and having a lovely week. Thank you so much for giving me such a warm welcome back with last week's episode. It really is great to be back. I love bringing the podcast to you. And... It feels nice to be talking to adults about things that don't involve Peppa Pig. (laughs) I didn't know quite what to expect with this week's guest when I popped round to his house to record this episode, but Giles did not disappoint. (laughs) He also recorded a birthday message for my stepmother, who really loves him, and that got me major brownie points. So thank you very much, Giles. Giles's brilliant wife, Esther, was actually my first ever guest on Desert Island Dishes. So it's a little bit of trivia for you. Now, I hope you're sitting comfortably wherever you are. And I hope this conversation brings some joy to your day. My guest today is Giles Corrin. Giles has been a restaurant critic and columnist for The Times newspaper for the last 30 years or so. He has been described as Britain's most powerful food critic. His career has been rich and illustrious. He's written books, presented TV series, written columns and hosted radio shows. Most recently, alongside chef Monica Galletti, he is the presenter of Amazing Hotels, Life Beyond the Lobby, a BBC series that sees him travel the globe, visiting some of the most amazing hotels and rolling up his sleeves to work alongside their staff. When asked which he prefers, writing or being on telly, he said, I hate them both. And if I had money, I wouldn't do either. Welcome, Giles. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good answer. (laughs) True. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask if really push came to shove, what what would be your answer? If I had to write or be on the telly? Yeah. Do you know now I would say write. The telly I like because any moron can do it. So writing with my vocation, writing is the thing I'm probably best at, differentiates me. I'm probably better at it than most people, which is why I have a job doing it. Whereas presenting telly, I think really anyone can do. Uh, and you do you can, think it's easier? Yeah, you can do TV on a hangover. You can do 
TV on 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 mild brain damage. I mean, you can you can it's, it's easy, and it's probably be- mostly better paid. So, but now I've realised that fame, such taste as I've had of it, is probably not a good thing. And as I get older and cannot benefit from any of the trappings of fame, which is to say the the sex, you know, it's not the thing of being like this guy who's on the TV and you go out, you know, everyone wants you to come to their parties and have sex with them and all that. That's all like not relevant to me as a married father of two. Uh, so there's no, there's only downsides. There's only people deciding they hate you and, <laughs> and the world being what. what it is you know and social media being what it is you know lots of people do uh, and so i would now yes give them the choice in fact i would give up the tv tomorrow if there were another revenue stream hmm, interesting and how do you think you'd get on on the desert island obviously you're very used to staying in lovely hotels but what does the thought of a desert island do desert island i've just come back from the desert desert in abu dhabi where i was filming um for uh, amazing hotels and that was pretty hot yeah and pretty depressing and there wasn't much water i've been on a desert island i've been on uh, an island in uh, the south pacific tetiaroa for the show which was whereas a hotel called the brando it's a desert island literally a desert island bought by marlon brando when he was filming mutiny on the bounty wow uh, and he fell in love with the island and all the girls on the island and like, most of the boys as well i think and and uh, and he bought this and there's a hotel there and that was amazing so i think i'd be fine you, you, that was a coral atoll in the south pacific and you, with, with no sharks in the water because you're the the the, the atoll uh, by, by the by the what's it called the the, the, the reef uh, and then just amazing fish and, and turtles and all this stuff. And you go swimming and there they all are. So I think that would be dreamy. I, I snorkel and scuba dive quite happily. I guess there wouldn't be scuba diving equipment. No, but maybe you could fashion your own. Fashion an aquamar <laughs> from, a, from a coconut. Yeah, if, well, then, that sounds good. If I could do that, if I could somehow melt the sand to make some goggles and like go snorkeling, I would spearfish. Yeah. I'd be very happy. People, I don't like people. Okay, so you're good in your own company. Yeah, I am bad in company. Okay. You saw when you came into my house and I was a bit nervous. I would miss definitely the company of my, my children, cats and wife, but absolutely everyone else. But that, I like the order that you said that in. <laughs> your wife came after cats. My God, my wife, I've, I've you know. She's made her peace with that. My, she, she doesn't care if i live or die my wife so i think you've said that the strangest thing you've ever eaten is raw donkey that you had in tuscany which is quite a strange thing so do you think the food on the desert island you sort of be well equipped for that it was in lombardy okay with so tuscany i don't know the contrafiletto de asino yeah that i ordered my mistake with a vegetarian girlfriend not really knowing what i was doing in a restaurant brought the menu no english on the menu my italian is not even is nothing uno due tres quattro and that's the beginning of an Italian pop song, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that's it. I mean, I'm nothing at all. Lasagna al forno. I can't say anything. So on the menu, it said contrafiletto de Asino. And I thought the Asino was a local place where the contrafilet was delicious. Ordered it and it came raw, which is okay because I can eat carpaccio. You know? Yeah. Ate raw, tasted it. Mm, a bit weird. And, I, and then I said to the guy, is, uh, is, is it a cow? And no one said, esto es una, una vache. Vacho, that is it's a bit like a vach, you know, find some word and he goes blank face and goes, moo. And he went, no, no, no. Oh, uh, oh no. He was, like, I thought he was joking, but it literally, as you know, obviously ass. Yeah. Literally. So it's not even horse carpaccio, it's literally donkey carpaccio. And my girlfriend was vegetarian and she goes, that's why I'm vegetarian. That's the kind of mess you get into in me. So sorry. Yeah. There was and how that. was it? It was, I stopped eating it after I realized it was a donkey, which I would now I would plow on. I don't think, was I a restaurant critic then? I probably was. But, um, okay, so it was a little, anything that's not bread for meat is not very fatty. And the fat's where the flavor is. So horse, donkey, polar bear, they all taste basically the same. That's not one of your questions though, the weirdest thing I've eaten, or is it? No, it isn't. Other weird thing, I've eaten cow's udders and I've eaten 
pigs' uh, uteruses uh, in the well, while filming supersizers with. Super- oh yes. Um, I, we, we there was the the the, the ancient Romans. We did supersizers. Ancient Rome. The ancient Romans used to. They was was approximations we would buy, but pigs' womb or something. So, but what it said on the uh, on the front on the packet was sow's uterus, and it was got from some Chinese supermarket. I remember Sue Birkin and was defrosting all day in this thing, and Sue picked it up and said, "It's just a pile of defrosted fallopian tubes." <laughs> I'm aware that you're pregnant; it's not the best thing. But so, and they were disgusting, and we ate mouse. The Romans ate mouse. Uh, that wasn't very nice. Fallopian tube has yeah. got to be up there with one of the last yeah. things you'd want to eat. Yeah. Let's pause there and talk about the first desert island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. You, these are dishes that are cooked, like they'd have a recipe. It's not, it's not a bowl of Frosties. You don't want that. It can, really. No, it can be that. Because, I mean, every dish covers everything. The dish, there's a dish, and I know your next question is about the dish I first learned to cook, which it might also be that, but I'll, I'll use it here. I'll use it. The dish that reminds me of childhood is an egg and potato pie. I'm aware that as a restaurant critic, I should, have, I should deliver things that people haven't necessarily eaten or don't know about. No, not at all. Egg and potato pie is a very... Um, it's a recipe of my grandmother's. I don't know where it comes from. She was from Czechoslovakia. She was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It became Czechoslovakia by the time of her death when she lived in St. John's Wood. It was called Slovakia. She was Jewish, though my whole family were Jewish. I don't think this is either particularly Jewish or particularly Slovak. It's called egg and potato pie. You boil potatoes and you boil and peel eggs. You line a pan with butter, a dish, a deep dish, and a ceramic dish with butter. I uh, made it last week. You put a layer of potatoes in. Butter and salt and butter, butter and salt and pepper, layer of egg, another layer of potato, butter, salt and pepper, another layer of egg, another layer of potato, <laughs> butter and salt and pepper. You bake it, bake the hell out of it for like 45 minutes till the butter at the bottom is bubbling. You, you want to use a glass Pyrex and you can see the, the butter bubbling and it sort of fries, sautés the potatoes on the bottom. The top goes crispy in the conventional sense and you eat that. Boom. As it is, no accoutrements, nothing. You can eat it cold the next day. You're allowed ketchup, but not on the first serving. And People love it. People go mad for it. It's just those ingredients. You really taste the potatoes. If you use great potatoes, you notice, but you can use any potato. People go, surely some garlic. No. And it, I'll make a tartare fan, like the Nigel Slater tartare fan. is a lovely thing. Just potatoes sliced, layered on a hob, steaming away. Garlic infuses it. No, you don't put... The, people say, some cheese on the top. No. I'd be swearing, but you say you don't have swearing. <laughs> no, fuck off with your cheese. Uh, and no, and you have that. No, onion. Surely some onion. No onion. It's like literally eggs, potatoes. And I, I, I imagine it coming from the shtetl somewhere out in Central Europe. Although I'm at the shtetl where they're so poor that they have eggs and potatoes, but no onions or cheese. I don't think that exists as a thing. No. It might have not. no cheese because Jews don't eat dairy with meat. Okay. There's no meat in it, so they could have had cheese on the top. But and is this something you make your children now? I make it my children. So my mum used to make it for me, and my grandma made it for me. And the, the, when it reminds me of childhood, you talk about Proust and the and the and the Madeleine dipped in the in the purple tea, uh, and the, the scent that rises. So for me, you get within the egg potato pie, you will get you you slice the. Show you. Have you ever seen an egg slicer? Yes, no, of I, course. People, oh, people, yeah. okay, fine, good. Very people, retro. Like, yeah. Oh, wait. No, people. Oh, sorry. No, bourgeois. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's uh, it's something to do with an egg slicer, which often. So you slice your eggs. So you have these lovely cross sections of egg running through the thing, and they'll when the ones touching the edges will often burn slightly. So you get blackened egg white, boiled and then blackened, and it's chewy like a bit like plastic. Mm. And when I chew that, it reminds me of the bits of plasticky, and it's. it's <laughs> And my mum wasn't the world. She was a good cook, but you could get, she could accidentally drop a packet of fags in there without noticing me. So <laughs> it's, it has a plasticky taste and it really does transport me. But as the, but the whole thing with the egg and potato pie, some of the eggs better done than the other. Some isn't the trying to get a slice up without the yolk falling through the white. That's all. And so I now cook it for, for my kids. Um, 
I think you had me before the plastic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not really plastic. It's just very firm. I realised when I mentioned my grandmother that I should have said the dish that reminds me of childhood, but I've not had it since childhood. She would make a, she was a Jewish grandmother, she would make a chicken soup with knedlach, which is lots of balls, but also with unborn eggs, which are very hard to get. I have actually made it, but, and that was the thing I craved. as a, as a An unborn egg. When you buy a boiling chicken, yeah. when, and this, which you, there was, she didn't make, she, used to, she bought a boiling chicken from a kosher butcher, and, and it's a, it's a, so it's a layer at the end of its life. It's not, it's not raised because there's no economy in keeping a chicken. For, so layers at the end of their life, and inside them, I'm sorry to say this again to a pregnant woman, <laughs> are all the eggs lined up waiting to be birthed okay and so when you cut open a boiling chicken obviously the biggest egg in there they only look like yolks when they're inside they have no white it's obviously the one nearest the whatever yeah. biological word for the birthing canal of a chicken is i i hesitate to say vagina yeah. <laughs> but you know what i mean it's got so and then you have and then <laughs> and, it, and they line up rather tragically getting smaller and smaller along the oh wow canal, until you get to very small ones and my, my grandmother that's the traditional recipe for a jewish uh, uh chicken soup is you, you put those eggs in and then they cook in the soup and they bob around and they're at different sizes. And wow, I've never heard of that before. Very few people have, which is why yeah. I really should have said it. And and I you can buy them and I you can up in Temple Fortune near here, you can I have been up there and bought it's a hell of a palava making a, making Jewish chicken soup properly. But I have bought them and they and, and you put them in and that really reminds me of my childhood. An unborn so, so it's just like a, an egg yolk really, but perfectly spherical, a little bit firmer. One one of those bobbing in a in a clear chicken soup with sort of little dollops of fat on the top. That, that. Amazing. So you graduated from Oxford with a first. The world should have been your oyster, and yet you say that you didn't know what you wanted to do with your life, but that a trip to Paris at the age of 21 changed your life. Tell us a little bit about that. Changed my life. It certainly, what it did, too romantic to say it changed my life, but it sort of put me in the box seat professionally for the change in journalism with the with food becoming a big thing. So I left, yeah, I left uh, with, with this degree and there was a recession and I couldn't really get a proper job. So I went to live in Paris with my girlfriend uh, who was doing a year there for, out from her degree in French and philosophy at, at Oxford and couldn't, couldn't try to write a novel. I don't know what that means. I, mean, I tried to write a novel, but I couldn't find any paper. So <laughs> I tried to get a job teaching Berlitz English and that was boring and out in La Défense and a bit scary. And then um, I got a job at Ralph Lauren uh, in, in a shop earning good money, like, 250,000 francs a year, 25 grand a year, not paying any tax. It took me seven or eight years as a journalist to get back my salary up to what it had been selling wow. shirts in Paris. Um, with all that spare income, I ate out every night. And we ate all over, whether it's in the famous brasseries Flow and Boffanger and Julien and all that, or out in, um, there's all the eating, you, you are constantly trying to recreate things you have at home. So trying to find a Trying to find a good curry is a famous <laughs> thing in Paris. You can't really, because and, and, and try and find Chinese food. And their immigration is different from ours, and it may be different now, but 30 years ago, there wasn't sort of much straight Cantonese Chinese cooking. But there was obviously lots of Laotian, Indochine, uh, Vietnamese. So lots of that, uh, lots of North African food. So all these other, and then also going, by doing your shopping in shops, which were proper food shops, which they didn't have in England then and don't really now outside of sort of shortage you know an actual going to an actual fromagerie and and you know and falling for cheeses like a boulette d'Avene, which you never see here which is you ever seen the, the red pyramid the the leaves of the marwal rolled in yeah. chili powder, all these and so i got to know all this i ate all this food spent all my money on food when i came back to london became a journalist and about four or five years later the times it was someone condé nast were doing a restaurant guide and and the editor so the guy editing said oh Giles, he, he knows all about cheese we'll get him and it's literally because we'd been out to eat and they brought a cheese trolley and I'd known what all the cheeses were <laughs> and, how, and how, you know, what, what they all meant and how they were made and where they were from, which people, English people didn't know then. 
So I knew all about food. So it's more, it's, it's not that I developed a great love and an interest in food, which I wouldn't really pretend. I mean, everybody, as you must know from your podcast, everybody loves and is interested in food and is fascinated by it. So that doesn't differentiate me. I've got a job in it. And I've got that because I went to Paris and I was able to pronounce the Jesus properly. That's interesting. So it wasn't sort of like that year was a real education in food. It's a real education in how I don't want to work in a shop. Okay. Uh, so I better be a writer. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and, and like, yes, it's amazing to have lived in Paris for a year because then, then uh, when you read uh, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein, all these people, and if you have lived in Paris as a young man, it stays with you wherever you go for Paris is a movable feast. And they go, yeah, yeah. I mean, I worked in a shop and, uh, and I had 30 franc luncheon voucher for my lunch from Ralph and it was on the Place de la Madeleine which is one up from the Place de la Concorde and three quid that doesn't get you far in Paris and I, I used to go to a place called uh, Le Colombier which we everyone went to we called it Le Colostomy uh, <laughs> it very good and for, for your for your 30 francs you could get a frankfurter in a in a baguette with mustard and one small beer and that was my lunch every day but no but it was still I know my way around Paris as a result but it wasn't all eating out. You say you did a lot of cooking, mostly Claudia Roden and Elizabeth David recipes. So are you a really good cook? Oh, that's true. That did happen. Well, but I only cooked because I was a kid and that seemed fun. And I had a girlfriend. I was 21. I lived with this woman that I loved in Paris on a fourth floor walk up by Republique in an old sort of early 19th century thing. You know, I wasn't deliberately trying to populate my imagination with exciting sort of Victor Hugo stuff like that. It just sort of happens in Paris. And uh, yeah, and we just cooked because that was the, the thing to do. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think cooking is difficult. Yeah, I'm okay. I can cook, yeah. I can cook anything. I think that's something people always want to know about food critics. Yeah. Like, are you yourself a good cook? And if you're a good eater, presumably you're a good cook. No, yes, I'm a, no, I'm a good cook, but I mean, I don't think cooking is very difficult. I almost, I mean, I, I just don't think it's very difficult. I don't, I don't think the thing in restaurants, the ones that, the ones that can't cook are few and far between now. If I, if you go to a restaurant, as long as you're not actually looking for bad cooking, if you go to a restaurant, and that, you know, we're not talking about chains, but you go to a sort of independent restaurant that has survived two or three years in a reasonably demanding location, less demanding locations. Yeah. You know, the only French restaurant in the whole of, 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 you know, I don't know, I'm not going to name a place, but like you take some sort of areas where they don't really have many restaurants and then there's one French restaurant that might be rubbish. I'm garbling. The point is, is that it's not, most people can cook. Okay. It's not normally the cooking. Making a great restaurant isn't really about being able to cook. Cooking for a hundred people uh, and getting all their food out on time and being charming and polite and sweet and the place looking nice and all that, that's really difficult. Uh, but cooking, yes, I can sort of cook. I can, would have said I can cook anything, but I have a quite sort of strong, um, work enjoyment ratio i'm aware of how much of this work i'm about to do is going to pay back in my mouth okay <laughs> uh, there's, and there's every the benchmark you know Esther, my wife has a similar thing in a restaurant even she goes okay how much there's a cheeseburger on the menu and there is also a goose stuffed with a duck stuffed with a ptarmigan stuffed with a fat. How much nicer than the cheeseburger is it going to be? Probably not at all. Probably the cheeseburger will be the nicest thing. So my benchmark, if I'm going to have, I mean, toast, hot buttered toast with Marmite is really nice. So am I going to spend sort of three hours preparing a, a, a sort of a really elaborate thing? poaching a salmon and then laying slices of cucumber along it or whatever yeah. and making my own aioli when I could just have some toast and that. Toast. Yeah. And the time that it takes to cook it versus the time it takes to eat it. Sometimes I find that really depressing cooking for people and yeah, it's all gone within. Five, yes, exactly. That's the great thing about wine. Yeah. That it takes, <laughs> you really it just, you take, they do all the work and then you and then away you go. That's yeah. the about it. And it, to be fair, wine is one of the reasons for cooking good food, isn't it? Because with my toast and Marmite, I mean, we had the other day, I went, we went up the road and I just finished filming and I bought a bottle of Corton Charlemagne 2015, probably the most expensive bottle of wine I've bought. 
locally it would have been like 600 quid in a restaurant or something and it was delicious and i can't even remember what we had with it but it wouldn't have been any <laughs> yeah, good it doesn't matter it doesn't matter exactly <laughs> yeah. it would have been good with my mind on toast that brings us on nicely to the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook Okay, so I think a dish you learn to cook is it's got to be a dish, dish, dish. So like, what is a dish? I mean, the first meal that I made for myself that I felt was differentiated and pure Giles Corrin is cocoa pops and muesli with double cream on the top, which <laughs> which was in a in a sort of a sort of seventies terracotta bowl. There's no, I mean, this isn't my dish. Yeah. Where you put muesli on the bottom uh, and let the milk soak in, then cocoa pops or Cocoa Krispies, as they were then called. Then you pour the milk on so they rise up out of the bowl, and then you slather double cream over the top to hold the Rice Krispies down when you're carrying it up the stairs to bed to <laughs> eat while reading an Asterix book. Wow. Uh, and that was like, and I, to this day, do we have, we've got, we've got Rice Krispies, we've got Sultana, we haven't actually got any Cocoa Krispies at the moment. But so that would be that kind of mixing cereal, although my parents wouldn't allow cereal mixing. Okay. So that was like when they were out, I could do that. But you couldn't put cornflakes and crosses in the same bowl. Why? Because they just thought it was a bit gross or? I thought it was common. Oh, yeah. I don't know. But also, I've often in the past, I have wondered if it's because they were Jewish and both brought up quite orthodox, that they're some, just the, they're just so used to kosher rules. I mean, they weren't. They were all non-kosher by the time they were, I was born. But you go, no, you can't have that. It's like having, yeah. you know. And then as a child, you ask why and... There is no because reason why. I but, say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the dish that I cook, that my mother used to cook that was delicious and she still cooks for me and I cook and I took to university and cooked for people is beef stroganoff. Ooh. And that was a proper dish and I didn't know it was a 70s dish until it was much later in the 80s and I cooked at university in the 80s and it was still an okay thing to have. When I was at university, there was a restaurant called the Elizabeth, which was a famous old restaurant in Oxford, it's not there anymore, and they had a beef stroganoff and that was a thing. And uh, my mother always made it with fillet steak because she makes everything with fillet steak i would make it with ribeye because you need the fat for the flavor and i think that, but um i now make it slightly differently okay because i i always used to make my, my my mother always although they liked rare beef in theory and they'd ask for it rare in a restaurant because that was sophisticated she tended to cook meat through and so she would sear the 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 uh, everything together the, the the beef the onions the mushrooms and that kind of stuff and then you know slap in the wine or the, i'd probably use sherry deglaze the pan with that a bit of cream and that kind of thing. And then tomato puree. She would use paprika being Hungarian. Tomato ketchup is actually good too. But, <laughs> but anyway, she would do that and it would all be a bit cooked through. So I do it, with our modern understanding of meat, which is I've got a, over there, I get a griddle, you know, a griddle with a griddle bar, whatever, really, really hot on the thing. Take my ribeye steak and one side and the other side and then put it away and rest it. And then I make the, the stroganoff separate from the meat and return the meat late to the stroganoff i don't you know the juices that run off onto the griddle i'll pour in but i think we now understand a really good piece of meat is not a thing to cook for ages in, yeah. in wine and cream and onions and things. they're a great garnish but you you chuck it back in at the end because ideally you have your sort of gray sort of gray pinkish sauce mm. of tomato puree and cream mm. onions and and and, and mushrooms uh, and then when you pick up a piece of of steak out of a strip you know lengthwise strip of steak, it's going to be black on the outside but pinky bright red in the inside so you're getting a bit and that's uh, and then and also my mum always did it with white rice which is the most delicious yeah um there's just no getting around it it just is (laughs) but we would have it depending on where we are how we're feeling about our bodies my wife and i it'll either be with red kamag rice or then it'll be with red kamag rice with some white in it okay or black wild rice which is really like takes a month to cook and isn't really a rice it's a legume and all that but you i would then have that mixed in with the white rice 
I like how people try to pretend that they just prefer brown rice. Yes. They don't. No, it goes through like a plunger. It's good for that, but it's not. No, white rice, it's just insane. I make, I mean, the worst thing is making sort of Southeast Asian cooking and stuff. You, and, and then doing, doing, doing that with, you know, you make yourself a sort of, I don't know, a tiger prawn green curry and you try and have that with red rice and you can't taste anything. Yeah. White, white rice is, and now we're increasingly now, you know, now. But my husband's half Japanese and he's always telling me that. Japanese white rice is really good for you. Of course, because everybody thinks the food from their country is really good for you. And you look at Japanese people, they are by and large incredibly healthy. And yeah, ever, they so. are. So he's tricked me into a full sense but of we security. Know how Japanese people eat rice. And it's the same with the rice eating cultures. English people, oh, a great big bowl of rice, you know, a kilo. You know, Japanese people have a bit of rice with their meal. Yeah. Same thing with pasta. My wife and I did. I got, I got fat on pasta when I was in my 20s. And my wife and I sort of didn't eat pasta for years because it makes you fat. Because English people measure out like 100 grams, 120 grams, if they measure it, well, a packet of pasta, splosh, <laughs> boil it until it's basically a cake uh, and then cover it in salt and eat it all. Whereas Italians who aren't really fat, they, they boil, they'd be the equivalent of 50 grams dry probably. Little bit of pasta, quite al dente, nine minutes, little bit of that, but also a big pile of green things. Yeah, it's true. We just, we do it wrong. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so the story of how you came to be a restaurant critic was almost by accident. You were working at Tatler in 1998 as the editor of the review section. And I think you said that you got fed up with the existing restaurant critic and decided that you could do it better. Is that how the story went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of st- sort of full starts with it. But um, yeah, so the, the restaurant critic was a guy called Rory Ross, lovely guy, good restaurant critic, old fashioned journalist, old fashioned restaurant critic, long lunches booze lovely i mean I, me too but he just didn't use to file on time and he used to sweat it quite hard he used to stress and i just got fed up with waiting i wanted to get the pages away and get off on to, into t- i was there i was in hanover square with all these sexy young things i wanted to get out to parties i didn't want to sit there waiting for Rory's copy day after day after day. he did and he'd, he'd disconnect his phones and stuff yeah. like that to, to, so that you couldn't you can get him and i eventually went round to his house and banged on his door and his cleaner let me in mr ross he in the oven no, boom went through upstairs banged on his study door opened it and there he was sitting there in his dressing gown <laughs> laboring over the third paragraph of this review of daphne's or something said look mate honestly let me cut you free let me set you free from this hell and he was grateful and he went off to do other things and then i hired myself yeah and so what was the first restaurant that you reviewed do you remember the first i don't know so in those days at tatler you would be sent on you do it get to do a lot of freebies you go off with the prs and and you could do them for little blob reviews and you had a budget for three main reviews 300 words each which were independent the other ones weren't the independent they, they were the ones where whichever pr girl was nicest to you got the best review okay um <laughs> uh, but uh do you know probably i would say the first one i really remember is petrus marcus waring i'd not eaten at L'Oranger. He had been at L'Oranger when Gordon was at Aubergine. Mm-hmm. When Aubergine, when R- Gordon left Aubergine and opened R- Hospital Road, and then I think he bought Petrus with his father-in-law and got Marcus in to be the cook there, early doors, and I went, and Marcus was about 28, and I knew enough about food by then. I, w- I went with Alan Crompton Bat, actually, who was, was a famous old restaurant PR, who's now dead. And I just, I remember the sweetbreads. I can't remember what they were, sort of pan fried sweetbreads with morals and whatever and 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 i that was and i wrote a review saying it's better than anything gordon ramsay's ever cooked even though i'd never eaten anything cooked by gordon ramsay uh, and marcus loved me ever since and that was that was and it turns out that he was obviously a great chef and it, it was it was marvelous and i it was pro- that was probably my first published review how did that how did that go down with gordon gordon, but gordon is a great pantomime dame i mean he made a big he didn't actually he wouldn't have known who i was particularly then later on he might have noticed but i love gordon and i've always been really nice about gordon and sometimes i've taken his restaurants down or said dumb things about him thinking he's far too famous to care 
and he finds me. I guess that's the lesson, isn't it? No one's too famous to care. If you say something mean enough about someone, however famous they are, they're I, probably going to hear. I never, I, yep, I've, I, I had said mean and terrible things about Anthony Bourdain. I never thought he'd hear about it. That was in the days when I was on Twitter. Tweeted something mean about him. God, he came for me. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. Clarkson. Clarkson's a good mate. But last time I was doing a sort of press round for a new show. I had a show going, a quiz show. And then, yeah, 500 questions. It didn't come to much. But despite my excellent PR round, which I just said, I'm a, Jeremy Clarkson is a shit version of me or something, I, something like that, even though he's my friend. But I thought he'll never see or care. He heard. Life apologising for that. <laughs> Let's talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Okay, so I feel as a restaurant critic, the best dish I've ever eaten I should take literally, rather than say, oh, it was my mother's hot buttered toast when I was eating or something like that. The first amazing meal and another transformative moment. So the, the journey to become a restaurant critic isn't overnight. And I got that Tatler job, but I, lo- I, I then moved from Tatler and I was, went to the Times and I did other things. And I got selected to be restaurant critic there for another silly reason, because I was, I was writing the Times diary and I was upsetting too many people in high office. And they were all saying to the editor at the sort of reform club, Michael Howard, this Corrin's got to go. Uh, and so he fired me into the job of restaurant critic. Oh, that's to, so interesting. To, to keep, in 2001, to, to, to keep me out of trouble. If there was a guy there, Jonathan Meese, he'd been doing it for 15 years. He'd kind of lost the knack a bit they just hoiked him chucked me in and i and i went I just, yes and i was made i'm mean, a maid it was amazing but the editor was so old school he thought giving me the restaurant critic job was a punishment uh and he little he, did he know little did he know and the other restaurant critic job i got you see which you it's just in between i was restaurant critic of the independent for a year and it was because the, their current restaurant critic was a bit busy doing tv who, oh, was that, that was he finally wedding store yeah. and i like to go for him he wasn't a very good restaurant critic Brilliant, brilliant cook, brilliant book writer, brilliant TV presenter. And he'd, he'd given that up. So, yeah, so at every time I've got the job, it's because someone else, and whoever gets mine, it'll be, you know, for whatever reason. But so, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so there you are in Oxford and not wanting to, but the Manor of Cat sells on. So, so what tended to happen was, I, I think I finished finals and I had this, and my girlfriend and my parents came up to Oxford, oh, I finished finals. And they didn't talk like that. Uh, and took me and my girlfriend, Katie, to the Manoir Cat Saison, where it was a little bit embarrassing because that was my parents were heavy smokers. And that was in the days when they, you could still smoke, but there was a smoking room. But my parents didn't like the smoking room. The Grand Salle in there, or so Grand Salon, wherever the man was where you want to sit. My parents sat in there and smoked throughout. Everyone complained. Oh no! Everyone asked them to stop. Why was that so embarrassing? I know. I didn't know where to look. And they wouldn't go into the smoking room because it was horrid. And they just sat there and smoked. But I remember. The first, that's the first restaurant food that I really remember. And I remember so 80s, but his truffle scrambled eggs served in the eggshell. And then I remember uh, asparagus tips and morals. So it must have, because of course, I'm thinking, is this true? But of course, yeah, my finals were finished at the beginning of May, which is the season when you yeah. would have morals and you would have asparagus. So I went there and we had that. And, and that was in a little copper saucepan served in the saucepan. And I just blew my mind. Mushrooms and fucking green veg, you know? <laughs> wow. And then it was amazing and buttery. And then after that, there was some longestine. And after that, I was pissed. But uh, and th- th- but those three just wow. Now this I can see this work. This is good. And I think Raymond probably came out to do I've been cooking. My name is Raymond. Uh, so he came out. And so I think that might have been it's that or uh, Elbily. And I'm fortunate enough to have been three times. <gasps> have you really? And wow. I, so and, I, and in 2002, he was having he was taking a year to contemplate his thoughts and think about what to do in the future. So he did a reprise on previous things that he'd been cooking for many years before. And so that had things like his rose petal tempura, which you need to say nothing about except it tastes like a rose petal tempura. Special roses bred by Ferran to be more meaty, a bit like a sort of really meaty uh, artichoke leaf, but all rope, amazing. Summer truffle carbonara with the giant summer truffle carbonara. So you don't even understand it. These jokes, you would genuinely laugh. Big, big sort of sheets of 
summer truffle in a sort of on the plate and it wrapped a bit wrapped around a cheesy sauce containing little bits of pasta nuggets of pasta and uh, and guanciale so that it's like instead of have i mean you wouldn't have mushrooms in a carbonara but some people do instead of being pasta dressed with thing it was big sheets of mushroom slash truffle and, and the other thing on that menu that i remember was that there was a baked potato consomme so it looked like a consomme when you drank it it tasted of bonfire night Tasted of Guy Fawkes night. Tasted of potatoes cooked in the fire. And I've never known how he did that. Wow. Um, oh my God, that sounds incredible. So, the, and those were things which were, and I, I got in trouble with like Sue's Corner and General, everybody. I, he didn't so much feed us as deflowered us. Uh, and in the morning, <laughs> we go to another restaurant, my friend and I, and we were, we're unable to eat because all they have on the menu is food. Mic drop. You know, that's what I thought was passed for food writing in 2002. But, and I then went back and it was like disappointing. Oh no. The second time. Well, yeah. the second time. He risky doing, going back. Hmm? It's risky. It's risky. Oh, it's great. And then yeah. I went again when he was just before he closed and he had a 50 course menu. And I went with my brother-in-law, one of my famous comedy brother-in-laws, Alexander Armstrong, who loves his food, right? We went there and it was wonderful. And then we had a massive, massive <laughs> lunch and got battered, uh, uh, drinking sort of Albarinos and, and old Riojas and stuff. Went and had about two hours kip, then went to El Bulli. We were a bit late, feeling a bit queasy. 50 courses. And, and Zander wasn't. 50 courses on a hangover. Yeah. And Zander wasn't really. He's not as used to it as me. And he bathed it, I think, after the 17th course and the 43rd course. No. He talks about, Zander in interviews will talk about that as his greatest meal, but he doesn't say that he had to go be sick twice. <laughs> because of the hangover or just because no, it was very rich? So much. Yeah. No, it wasn't really a hangover. Come on. We had a couple of bottles of wine. We had big fat Englishmen. We can go. It wasn't, it was, we weren't, we were in a great mood, but it was just like a lot of, a lot of food. The process of critiquing a restaurant, surely something I've always wondered is there must have been times when you've gone with a friend or you've gone with your wife and you've had an argument or you just haven't had a good time, but it's had nothing to do with the restaurant. How do you then approach writing the review because it's so tainted by the experience that you had? You literally cast me back to a meal I had at Rocker when I had a conversation with my wife in which she admitted having slept with somebody, admitted having slept with someone who she had previously claimed not to have slept with. It was not during our marriage. It was just this bloke. I go, yeah. yeah. And she goes, no, 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 no. And then later she forgot that she lied about it and said it, like, just mentioned, oh, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> what? So I can't go back to Rocker, yeah. which is a shame. And did you have to write about it? Uh, I didn't. Yes. Okay. I didn't. But you were meant to. And then annoyed. you just, yeah, no, I, was I can't. About it. I mean, that's quite an extreme example. And many a restaurant critic wouldn't tell you some private detail like that, but I don't care. And she won't care. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, no, God, absolutely. God, all the time. If I have a bad time, it's very hard. If I, if I, if I leave it too long or if I drink too much and then I feel remorseful, the beginning of a meal is so wonderful. The end can be so messy. And then you think, oh God, I wish I hadn't eaten and drunk all that stuff. Or you, in the old days before I was married, I might go and do something a bit stupid with someone I didn't really know, for example. And, and they, I dare say they were more remorseful than me, but it was like, then it would be hard to, 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 to having to put yourself back in the mindset of the meal you ate and where you were then. I just wrote one today. It was, I ate the meal three weeks ago. I didn't make notes. I could remember almost nothing. I wanted to Google other reviews and copy them, but which I often do. Uh, cause when you're, when you're the biggest dog in the, in the, in the pound, yeah, you can rip off everybody. The little people can't risk copying me because people go, you've copied it off Corin. No, I just copy stuff out of Ether and Time Out. No one ever, no one could possibly believe it. Um, but, uh, oh, I put in some jokes and they think it was by me. It's, it's, and, the, and the, even worse, is the thing with your you have these different things so you eat a meal most people eat a meal you have a poo and it's done for me you write a review maybe three weeks later then about two months later you do your expenses so you pull out the sheet and you go oh god that meal and if it was bad it reminds you and then you do your tax mm. like a year later or 18 months later you're going through your tax I'm, I'm now i just sort of dump them on my accountant but quite often i'll go through these receipts to check was that a was that a work meal can i put that through and you go oh i remember that we had a row about whatever and you live it and that was like from the previous tax year yes yeah, so you've got to relive it several times 
Yes. And something I read was that you never tell the restaurant that you're coming and you book under an assumed mm-hmm. name. And I'm kind of hoping it's something like Julia Roberts in Notting Hill. Are you a series of you Disney characters? Adrian Gill. Oh. <laughs> but Adrian, you're not sort Adrian of Mufasa. Yes. Okay. There are some. I wouldn't give them away. So I, I, I sometimes, it depends. If they put me on the spot, I often say Walker, because that's my wife's maiden name. Yeah. And then they ask for first name. And then I go, Cedric. And then I've made a person, Cedric Walker, who's he. And I feel like I should dress as him. It's really difficult. <laughs> I tend to say Angus, but that's mm-hmm. her father-in-law. That's her father, my father-in-law. So then we okay. go to a restaurant and she's like, so Angus Walker. It's weird for her because she has to, she, because normally she will say, oh, we're here. The booking's in Angus Walker. So that, cause like people, I mean, I'm on TV. They do recognize me a bit, but they recognize me less if I just stand at the back and Esther said, let's go. And we go and sit down and I face the wall. So that's always a bit weird. I, but I now, because you have to, now it's all online. There's Resi and Open Table and all the, I forget what names I've given them. So I think on Resi, I'm Armando Hardwilly, <laughs> spelled H-A-R-D-W-I-L-L-I. And then I'll go to a restaurant and I'll book a place. And then I, this happened the other day at a Jason Atherton restaurant, the Harrods Social. And they have, he has a wonderful maitre d' whose name I won't pass on, who, 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 who's there for all the openings. So I arrived at the restaurant and he's, he's standing at the table and I arrive and go, hi. And he goes, oh, Mr. Hardwilly. And they go, oh, right, was this one of the Hardwilly ones? <laughs> Um, and the other day I went to view the vegan pizza express oh. and I booked it in the name of Peter Boizo. Peter Boizo was the man who founded pizza express mm-hmm. in 1962 and sold it in 87. And I thought that's a little joke only, only, only for myself, mm-hmm. but there was Claudio from Colombia. Claudio from Colombia. He's working, uh, <laughs> he's working pizza express since the nineties. He thought this is funny joke. I am laugh, laugh, laugh. <laughs> He'd ne- he li- literally knew who Boizo was. So it was waiting for Peter Boizo to come in who's dead. And so I always try and use funny ones. The thing to do is to remember to write my name in my diary. Yes. Otherwise I don't know who I said. Yeah. I've got lunch. Who am I? And then they just say you're having some kind of crisis. Awful. I go, who have I booked as? I don't know. Uh, sometimes my email address is me. So I book as, you know, Armando Hardwilly, but it's child.coronet, the blah, blah. And so then they know it's me. Yeah. It's a bit of a minefield. And now this thing with the, sometimes they want credit cards and that kind of uh, Yeah. I sort of, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, sort of the, these days, I should book as the people I'm meeting. It's easy. Or, or occasionally I do just use my name now. I'm, I'm, now. I'm a bit of an old dog now. Now these places where you can't get in. So like Marina O'Loughlin. Yeah, you've got to drop your name. I just, I just phoned the owner. Hi, oh, yeah. Table. Uh, and they just tell, give me the table. Please don't tell them it's me because they'll be stressed. Just if you can possibly bear to tell them. And then just, I just need a bill for everything. Ooh, so what about those restaurants where... You can't take a booking. You have to queue. Presumably, you don't have to queue. Or do oh, you, yes. Do you go to them, but you don't have no, to queue? No, you just, just don't, don't go to no, them? No, you don't. You know, you always have to queue. Okay. No, I just have to queue. No, I don't sort of jump queues. I just like, if I want to go to a new I restaurant, Marino Lothan on Sunday tradition. Times won't do that. They're but not, you can't book. I, no, I wrote so it. annoying. When, when Paul Pope opened in 2007, I wrote, I, I went to review. I now like Russell and all that and his... Delicious. But at the time I wrote, I, I, that I, that it, this wouldn't work, I couldn't, wouldn't work for me because I won't cross town on the off chance of well, getting No, again. it's so frustrating. But it's for younger plans. people. For younger people. And also it's become more possible. So the thing that I objected to about the no bookings thing in the early 2000s was in Spain, if you're in, I used to go to Seville a lot. You're in Seville. You, you, you're in Madrid on a warm evening. You can walk from one place. You, you don't need to book. You go to this place for the gambas and you go to this place for the, for the tortilla and this place for, to the other different things that they do. And you walk from one to, and, they, and if this place can't do, you go to the next place and they give you, you say, uh, they say, come back in 10 minutes and we'll have this table for you. In England, yeah. Pizza Express. I mean, there wasn't it. Now in certain zones, you know, 
parts of East London, parts of the West End, you can. You just come if you can't get into if you can't get into to, to um, Barafina, then you get into um, you know Bulpa or whatever. It yeah, might be. but it's still annoying. I don't like it. It is annoying. The only difference is that um, there was a phase with like ramen places and stuff, some really fashionable things like that were going on, and and, and baobun places. And I found that I when they had queue of fifty people, and I would go. The first, I, the first time it happened, I, I thought, I, I, I got there and there was this huge queue and there was a bloke, two from the back, said, ah, oh, Charles Corrin. I, yes, he did. Um, do, you want, do you want to come and get, I said, do you want to have lunch with me? I went, okay. And so I had lunch with this bloke who was a pension <laughs> fund broker or something. And I sat and had lunch with him and I paid for his lunch. And then I just realized, oh, this is handy. So I had, did start a phase of going to these places, walking up, looking in the, in the menu, looking a bit disappointed and waiting for someone to say, Yes. <laughs> and that always inevitably happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, because something else that I read was that you do end up taking strangers. Like if someone emails you out of the blue and says... Yeah, I, I used to do you? that a lot. I don't do that anymore. Okay. I, just because they might be murders and stuff. Well, yeah. But I, I, used I used to do it. Also, I felt like that was quite risky to admit because once you've opened those floodgates... I used to get, before the internet, I used to get before the paywall, which mm. I support because it pays for my, paid my bills. But before the paywall, I was... I used to get a thousand emails a week. I'm sure Jay Rayner does. I'm sure they do on the papers that you can get free. So I would get a thousand people saying they want to do it. And I just would put it at the bottom, you know, if you know, but I was in those days, I was trying to find, you know, the best little creperie in Staffordshire. And I was not interested anymore. I just want to go the, the nearest place to my house that I can review and get home, watch the football. I mean, I, I, I'm buying 1500 words out or, or copy and paste something I wrote 10 years ago and stick it in because no one will notice. But when I used to really, really care about sniffing out the best restaurants, uh, then I used to do that. I'm a little nervous to ask you the next question as I know that you have a real thing against bread, but the fourth desert island dish what is your favourite sandwich? Oh, I noticed you asked that question. Yeah, I don't eat sandwiches. Okay. I don't have a real thing against bread. Okay. In my book, How to Eat Out, yeah. 2012, which I think was 2012, I could say go out and buy it now, but you can't buy it. Oh, no, it's still on Amazon. Is it? No, do you know, it did, it did very well. My books normally don't, but it actually did well. Most of my other books completely tank, but that one did okay. Did just lay off the bread. Yeah, that's because I, I just, the main complaint that my reader said is, oh, it wasn't enough free bread. They made me pay for the bread. I asked for my fourth basket of bread and they wouldn't bring any bread. The fuck are you going to this restaurant eating bread for? And people go, and then in England, you've got to plunk down a massive thing of bread. And now they do it in Italian and French restaurants, which they don't do in Italy and France, really. And they do it a bit, but it's like, they'll, or they'll particularly, they'll bring it later. You'll first mouthful will be olives and a bit of salami get your taste buds going english people want a loaf of bread as soon as they sit down chop i've got any butter oil to dip it in and you've eaten and then you order the food and by the time the main course comes you're not hungry and that's all your calories right there what a waste you know a single bun has the same calories as a large glass of merso what are you even thinking of and the merso will lower your blood sugar and get you and i'd probably start with a sherry a little manzanilla something like that and negroni same amount of calories makes you happy not sad and lowers your blood sugar and gets you ready for your meal. Whereas a bun, a fucking bun just before dinner, just means you don't want to eat. And it makes you sad because you feel like a fat. Anyway, it's just stupid. Ah, you're right. I'm not like their bread. So sandwiches, I am fortunate <laughs> enough to have been able to construct a life where sandwiches are not required. Okay. If I have to eat one, when I go and do my Times radio show, because I have to be there at 10 and I'm not a breakfast eater, I tend to do a 16. I don't call it a 16, 8, but I don't eat for, a, I do my eating in a window between, okay. between about, 10 and 6. You're an unintentional faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's the only way I've found to be and eat three or four meals a day. So I don't eat. I have dinner, kids' tea time, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, unless I'm out, and then don't eat again until later in the day. So when I do the Times Radio Show, then there's nothing to eat, and suddenly it's time to go on air at 1 and I'm hungry. And I don't, I, if you eat something too stodgy, you fall asleep. So I, they have a, there is a 
like a vegan and I when I've rated every any fast food I do it vegan because there's no need to things to die for, I'll always eat I'll, the plant quite nice you know I'll, I'll always eat a, 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 a veggie veggie sausage roll from Greg's or something not when I'm having a delicious beef yeah. putting the <laughs> soy protein in there that's going to be a proper ribeye grass-fed British steak but um so I'd have a, a, a vegan falafel wrap so I'd have a wrap because the wrap bread has a low glycemic load and you've got to think about the thing you're putting in and I don't want that massive sugar spike from from a sandwich so then it would be like a vegan falafel wrap with loads of hummus, something that's quite nasty, so you don't want to finish it. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good tip. Yeah. And I can't, those people, the idea of those sandwiches, if you're talking about like sandwiches from, I don't know, Pret or a garage or those triangular ones where they make them and all the filling is just at the front yeah. because they put it and then they cut it in half <laughs> and it's, it's a bacon and chicken club, this awful processed animals that have been thrown whole and screaming into the blender. I, I can't be dealing with any of that. You've been accused of being very angry in the past, but you say that you're much less angry now. Have you written a review of a restaurant that you regret? Yes, quite a lot. Like recently, or are they all a long time ago? You don't have to tell us which one. I, no, I can never remember. I read them. And, you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, you, most people eat a meal and do a poo and then forget about it. I eat a meal, do a poo and then write a review. And it's a similar thing to doing a poo. You get it out of your system and then you don't really think about it again. Yes, most, almost all of the negative ones. And I'm not that negative often because I'm often wrong and I don't believe it's an absolute science and I don't like doing scores out of 10 and I don't like being asked where's the best this and where's the best that because it's all in the eye of the beholder. So any review which makes a person sad, I feel sad about. And so like all restaurant critics these days, really, I will never really be mean about an independent restaurant. I'll try and not review it. So you, you do often eat at restaurants, you don't love the experience, and then you just won't don't write it. about it. Right. Okay, so does that happen quite often? It happens less now because I'm a bit too busy. Yeah. So I sometimes write, this is my review meal. So I research it hard to make sure, I research it hard, I scroll through hot dinners until I think, dot com, until I found something I think I'll like. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't think, of, there are lots, lots of them that I've, that I've, I've got things wrong and... Years ago, I wrote a review and I singled out a waitress who'd been rubbish. And then she got in touch with me to say she'd been fired. Mm-hmm. And I found her another job because obviously I have lots of people I know at restaurants. And I said, do me this favor. Got found her another job. And then I never, never would identify a staff member again, even really to be nice because just too risky. You just don't want to single them out, but yeah. chefs get upset. Um, yeah, no, I regret almost every, everything I've ever written. I regret in some way. <laughs> uh, I really wish I was just a gardener. <laughs> the fifth desert island dish. Giles, what's the dish you eat the most often? But the dish I eat most often, and you're talking about a dish that you cook again, and we're not talking about a snack. So at, at, it used to be spaghetti alla bongole, on Talisay alla bongole. So that used to be, because my wife, as, as I was saying before, but I shouldn't say that because you might edit it out, but my wife and I, don't, we, we don't eat too many, don't eat too many carbs. Don't, and pasta you eat in a mindful way, you know, like, blah, pasta. And for years we didn't eat pasta um, because we want to drink booze and want to eat nice food and we don't want to be fat. So how are you going to do that? <laughs> I know what we'll do. We'll just not eat big white carbs. And our local farmer's market up the road, which is a bit of a pain to go to the farmer's market, can't really be bothered. But when the kids were tiny, we went every weekend. It's a wonderful fish market, uh, fishmonger from, from Devon, Josh. And, and he has just the most fantastic clams. They were, they were, they were just, they were just great clams. So I just would buy a kilo. I got it down to about 700 clams in the end because a kilo was so expensive. 700, 800 clams and come and just make spaghetti alla mongole. And it's mm. probably, there's not a recipe, but the way that Nigella does it, and she talks about it being her desert island dish, the way that Nigella does it, I probably do. I used to always do it with fresh chili, but in the end I found you need to get the, 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 the chili, the, the chili spice of a fongole completely right. Mm. If it's underpowered, it's no good. If it's overpowered, you can't taste the clams. And with dried chili flakes, which are our main use condiment, we have kilos of them. 
was the best thing. Uh, and yeah, spaghetti alla vongolese with a little bit of parsley from the garden, if I've got it in the garden, and was was uh, and then open the bottle of really nice wine. You're going to have the Albarino or something, and just. And there, and his were just wonderful. We've got another fishmonger up the road who's got a great fishmonger for sort of other fish. Clams aren't quite as good. So I now don't do it because if I haven't got to the farmer's market. So what has been replaced as that? That was every Monday we'd have that. Loads of clams with just a few strands of pasta. Mm. Uh, and now it's, for some reason, Esther, my wife, has a, a thing for my uh, putinesca. But, and it, cause, and putinesca, like Vongole, is the speed. You were talking earlier about, I don't know whether you'll leave it in your thing, but we were talking before about the payoff of time cooking, time eating. Now, uh, the Vongole and the Putinesca have in common the fact that at the moment you start boiling the water, that's the cooking time. There's no prep before that. Yeah. So I boil a kettle, heat the pan, in it goes, <clears throat> pasta goes in, you've got eight or nine minutes. That's fine for Vongole for opening the clams. And the same thing with the Putinesca, you know, really great anchovies. And the world now is full of wonderful tin fish, so it doesn't have to be crammed. Whole tin of anchovies, bam, like that. And then just chopping your capers and your, 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 your olives. And then some other little thing from the fridge. So I'd use, if there was like one artichoke left in the bottom of a jar of artichokes, I would chop that in. Or cut sometimes a couple of cornichons, sometimes a couple of jalapenos. And then passata. I don't use tin tomatoes. I just use a nice one of those nice posh organic passatas. And quite often we've got a we've got a, like a full vine of tomatoes, which Esther's bought because we feel we should eat more tomatoes, but we don't really like tomatoes. <laughs> so you end up with chucking in some vine tomatoes, and they pop in there, and that's really nice. So that would be that would be that, yeah. And that's like once a week, and sometimes twice. Oh, so good. Your latest project is, of course, amazing hotels, life beyond the lobby, which you present with Monica Galetti. I mean, it's got to be a dream job. How did that come about? They said, would you like to do a hotel travel show? And I went, yes, and was all geared up. And then about six months later, they go, oh, do you want to do it with Monica Galetti? I went, well, these were going to be my hotels. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we became best friends and had an amazing time. Yeah, because it isn't a partnership that you immediately think of, but it works so well. Yes, I mean, it does. Monica is an even bigger star now than she was uh, before. And she is a brilliant and... Uh, amazing woman and a great chef and a proper serious chef and one of the serious chefs who's always in her kitchen and loves it. she 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 started mirror her restaurant while we were making the first series and, oh wait and she's now she's now really overloaded she's got that she's got master chef she's got this amazing restaurant she's working very hard but she's an amazing inspirational character brings to the show different things from me so monica is full of woohoo and energy and hey and jumping off cliffs and scuba diving and i do the boring interview with the architects about how they made such a big window work in this location <laughs> uh, and uh, but it, it works quite well it, it, you know she's 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 you know she's She's a she's somewhere in New Zealander who basically swam here to get a job at the Gavroche and worked away in the kitchens and then rose up and did. And I'm a sort of trite English public schoolboy. And the, and the two and, and and we're best buddies and it, and it works really well. It came about because the BBC just decided the time has come to make such a show. Okay. Uh, and they wanted. It wasn't sort of something that you pitched and. People always say, "Was that your idea?" You imagine going to the BBC and say, "I've got this idea for a show where I go to the best hotels in the world and really don't do anything much apart from order room service and say sarky things to camera." No, that's the thing. But even more annoying that that came to you, Giles. I don't think it would now. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is. It is a blessing. And I, when my children were very small, I I used to grumble a bit about the travelling and being away. It never bothered my wife. She was always packing my bags and pushed me into the cab. But uh, <laughs> now they're older and they don't miss me particularly. Uh, it's it's great and it's lovely to get away from from the grind. You've already said that this is one of the questions that you don't like answering. So I'm going to ask you, which hotel has impressed you the most? I'm never that impressed with hotels or restaurants, really. I think, oh, you wanted to have a business, fine, you, you've managed it. I mean, but was there a hotel where you thought, maybe this is a better question, a hotel that, that you'd revisit with your family? Uh, there's one that I, I've been back to, okay. um, Giraffe Manor in Nairobi, which is a Edwardian in a national park on the edge of Nairobi with, with a giraffe preserve. So they, the giraffes come and eat. 
Oh, wow. And I took the kids there and then up into Samburu where they have a lodge where they went on safari. So that was great. Yes, no, they, they were also amazing. Ashford Castle in Dublin is a huge, wonderful, lovely. The number of times I had to say typical Irish hospitality in my pieces to camera, I said, I can't say it anymore. It's becoming racist, <laughs> but it is really typical Irish hospitality. It's just a wonderful place. And you can get there on Ryanair for 49 quid. You know, unlike the Brando in Tetiaro, where I went, which takes two days and 15,000 quid to get there, and is then 10,000 quid a night. But yes, when I was there, I went swimming with a humpback whale and her calf, which I will happily spend the fact, I was going to say the fax pairs money, the tax, the fee pair. I mean, that's one of those things you have, you come back with a show you, and the money is spent on making the show, but I got to see whales. You know, so, so that was pretty good. But, and in terms of, you asked the one I was impressed by, we went to a, a hotel in the Ecuadorian cloud forest, which a guy, the mayor of Quito and an ex-businessman had bought the last remaining cloud forest in all Ecuador, which had once been covered from the tips of the mountains down to the, down to the Amazon rainforest. And there was now only 3% of it left, all cut down in 30 years by oh. crooked Ecuadorian government. He bought the last 3% and then built a hotel there to preserve it. And he keeps his hotel running there in the, and it all goes back into the cloud forest, which is like wow. rainforest plus cloud forest. And that was like, and I, I practically wanted to weep with how brilliant that was. Unfortunately, making such a series, you can't always find stories as amazing as that, but his was amazing. We're onto the sixth desert island dish, and that is your go-to dinner party dish. My go-to dinner party dish my of late recently has become... I, I, I like barbecuing and so I do hot smoked salmon. So a whole side of salmon on the Weber, you can probably see out there, but just sort of crappy old, not crappy, lovely wedding present Weber barbecue. I don't, I never have charcoal because I don't like barbecue meat and stuff. So I use the logs that I have for the, for the fire. So I, I, I make about eight logs in a pyramid in the Weber and burn them down to ash. And I did it the first time to do a barbecue, trying to put barbecue chicken and I had mates around for the football. I barbecued this chicken and I put the lid on, but I hadn't used charcoal. I had used wood. Some serious smoke. And when we ate the chicken, it tasted of smoked salmon, which was a bit weird because it was chicken. And I thought, this is a bit disgusting, far too smoky because it's wet wood. Uh, well, no, it's dry wood. It's kiln dried, but it's, but it's not charcoal. And I thought, this smell, ah, but it would be very nice on fish. So the next time I did the same thing, big side of nice organically farmed salmon. I see it with wild salmon. was amazing. Uh, and you, you light your fire, you let it burn down to the ashes, shut the lid. 20 minutes later, because in entertaining is all about not cooking and not chopping a bit. And you do have nothing else. Salad's prepared on the table. Where's the food? Oh, it's just in the Weber. You whip it out and it comes out. 20 minutes in there, uh, indirect heat, wood pushed aside. And, then, and it comes out and all the sort of buttery fat lifts up off the top. And it just falls. And people it's the mo- people have never, hot smoked salmon, hot, fresh hot smoked salmon is the most amazing thing. Huge margin for error. Because, you know, I mean, I am a good cook, but you can make me say, because we'll eat salmon raw in sushi or we'll eat it at the other end of the scale overdone it's all very clever so if you get it so even if you get it slightly wrong it's fine and you can have that with with boiled new potatoes and a glass of a nice i mean it's it's becoming a theme but a nice buttery french chardonnay so if not a quarter on charlemagne or a merceau then a chablis will do nicely or a you know something like a puligny morachet some some good good stuff there or you can or a cloudy bay or you could just have cheap chardonnay i don't mind jacob's creek (laughs) Uh, but that but that it's it's the it's the cooking fish not making a smell indoors so it's outside on the thing and just like nothing to really do people go oh wow but they're not going wow because you've made loads of effort putting little chef's hats on the rack of lamb they're going wow because it's a really delicious thing they don't normally get that's very clever i'm gonna try that out do it it's, it's amazing on Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. What is your most treasured cookbook? Okay, so, I mean, there are some there. I don't, I mean, this is awful because I said I don't treasure cookbooks okay. really. I mean, not in a bad way, but I have I have a slot on my radio show where I get a chef every time. I have so many. We spend more time. I leave, every, every three months when, when the weather's dry, I put a hundred cookbooks out on my front step and the people come by and take them away. But no, come on. I start, in terms of treasure cookbooks, there is a handful. 
the, I, I, there's like sort of one Elizabeth David, one Nigel Slater, one all that standard thing that, that, that one has, Claudia Roden, Italy. But really, I suppose if I had one, it's Claudia Roden's Book of Jewish Food, um, which is a thick, thick, thick book. She's a beautiful writer and a wonderful lady and just an absolute legend. And she covers the whole um, Ashkenazi, Eastern European, my youth. But she's a better cook than my mum and a better cook than my grandma. And they were both perfectly good cooks. So <laughs> she's a better cook than most people. Than anybody, I know. <laughs> yeah. So the recipes that my... She's improved on some of those things. So I make a cholent, which is a famous um, Middle European bean and barley dish with a brisket of beef cooked in it overnight. She, I, I do that from her book. I make sort of knedlach and kreplach from her book. She's she's sort of a replacement Jewish mother, although I have a perfectly decent Jewish mother. She's also a doctor, so she didn't have that much time for the cooking. And Claudia does that. And also she has all the Sephardic cooking from the other side of Judaism, which I don't know much about. And the main thing is it's 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 so much writing in it, so much great writing, not just rubbish, not not oh I wanted to write a book all about my you know. It's it's great writing. So she's I've become more Jewish and more aware of my Jewishness through reading Claudia Roden's book of Jewish food and cooking the dishes than I did in the forty years of being a Jew before I found that book. That's amazing. Um so it's it's it's, it's I pass off a lot of her recipes. Oh it's just an old Corin recipe. The only old Corin recipe is a bacon sandwich. <laughs> We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I take that to mean the dish that, like my main dish. If it's you can have you can have a whole meal. Well, I'm, I'm assume I'm, I mean I assume I'm cast off on a desert island by accident. Oh no! Well, have I been sent there? <laughs> yes, we're sending you there. I thought I was. I, I thought I was just like no, no. I thought you've... the boat had sunk and I was on a life. Oh, and I've just arrived. No, because we're planning the meal. So you're being sent there. I'm sending you. My last meal, I would I would want the thing which I make best, apart from my salmon or whatever, but I want a baked potato. Okay. Um, I would, I'd want a nice, big, I don't care what kind of potato, really. A ni- I mean, I grow potatoes and a nice, big, big, overgrown winter potato in the oven. I don't have to tell you to, to clean it and brick it, you know, into the oven at top bongos, but much longer than you would think. So so at least probably an hour and a half um, and, until it's gone black, until it's crunchy, until when you tap it, you can hear that it's becoming to be hollow and the edges of the are gone papery. It hasn't gone black, but it's very dark brown. And when you pick it up and you put it down and the papery bits come off, you smash it open so the steam comes up and you have to step back. Like when you, we know when you open an oven door, and yeah. it's so hot that you step back and you put an, an like a third of a block of Lurpak on there and just mash, 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 really getting it all up. You can actually do it with a Pinot Noir, but I, if I, I tell you what, if you, you're having it plain like that, and that's for me the epitome of all food, it's carbohydrate and it's, but it's, but it's, uh, it has a kind of umami that comes from nowhere with the, the way that the, it's the crunchy, no, 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 nothing difficult. I, I would, if I'm going to a desert island, I wouldn't want to be eating sort of foie gras and towers of stuff. I'd want to just contemplating the meaning of life in, in, in a overdone baked potato. In a potato. Giles, those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does help others to find out about the podcast, which is great. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. You can sign up for the newsletter, which will hopefully be starting again soon. And there's a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. Bye.